Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Good news. The state of our union is bigly strong. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent news. (laughs) (laughs) And the Democrats don't look happy about it. No, no. Pelosi was grumpy. Schumer was grumpy. Ooh, yee. Welcome back, guys. Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire. Oh, my God. Why do I choke every time that I try and do this intro? Uh, and I'm joined, as always, by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hello. I'm back. Hello. You're Phil's back. back. I'm back. Yay. Better than I ever. Had, <laughs> I had a small emergency last week right as we started to record. I had to run out. So. But I'm glad to be back this week. Oh. Uh, hold on, I'm just fixing levels. Um, yeah, I mean, it it was it was an interesting speech to say the least. It was long. It was long, second longest um, in history, I think. Hour, hour and twenty minutes, right? Yeah. That's a lot. That's that a lot a of speeching. That is a lot yeah. of speeching. More 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 clapping uh, slash non clapping than uh, than actual speech was, um, slash I, substance, but. I, I almost said no one should have to listen to someone talk for that long. And then I'd realized I just got out of an hour and a half long class. <laughs> and we're about to tape something that's going to go about an hour and 15 minutes. And I guess nobody clapped in your lecture, Phil. <laughs> every every lecture, that that's how it ends. That doesn't work. That's not how it works for you. No, no. not at all. Well, the trick is you have to only look at one side of the room, the students that you like, yeah, and right. then occasionally look at the other side and kind of motion for them to stand up and clap. And then... Then, then it'll work. <laughs> so, the optics of a State of the Union are almost more fun than the content. So oh God, watching yeah. Trump turn to the crowd and you know wave the Democrats on, and and then seeing Mike Pence, who is the most loyal and loving vice president back there that you've ever seen. I mean, he just... He's a soldier. Yeah, he stared at Trump so, you know, just lovingly. <laughs> and I always thought that um, Joe Biden, when he when Obama would give those speeches, looked at Obama like he was just in love. But Pence takes it to another level. He's he's really... He's, he's in there deep. Dick Cheney, not so much. Dick Cheney looked like he was searching <laughs> the, off, uh, the audience for ISIS members. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um, go ahead, Phil. I was going to say, should we start by talking about the substance of the speech? I kind of want to talk about the State of the Union a little bit in general, and that it it feels like historically there were times where the State of the Union really mattered. But I don't – the last kind of 10 years, probably even longer than that, it sort of feels like it doesn't – I mean, do you think it still matters? Is it an important speech? Does it actually set the agenda in any way like it used to be? Does anybody watch? Like, I, I'm trying to. We get so worked up and spend so much time focusing on this, and I and I kind of wonder why. I mean, you, we watch it now, so we can play a drinking game with it. <laughs> but um, I I think it's less relevant now, considering we have updates on what's going on 
every minute of every day. Yeah. So I, I don't. You're not going to tell us anything new. For all the pomp and circumstance, you're right. There's nothing. You know, it's a laundry list of what the president wants to do, but there's no real initiative or agenda. It's yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't find it as significant as other things that happen over the course of the year with the presidency. I, I could be wrong, but that's what seems new or different to me. It seems like presidents used to come with a piece of legislation. Here's the bill that I'm, you know, that we're going to introduce and we're going to pass. And it just seems uh, just which, which, you know, fits with Trump's kind of larger MO. But it, this extends back, back beyond Trump. It, it just seems largely rhetorical. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't know. It doesn't seem like the, you know, the the bully pulp. It doesn't feel like they're they're using it to rally support for things. No. It's just a, a campaign speech. Yeah, it's well, I, I mean, they're not rallying support uh, within Congress. It's it's a pep rally for the rest of the country. And I if you look at it from that perspective, I think he did a pretty good job of, of re-solidifying support, definitely from his base and probably for a good portion of conservative Republicans in the sense of he had a relatively unified message. We cut your taxes. Uh, we're going to be hard on illegal immigration. Uh, stock market's up. Your 401ks are, are maturing nicely. And these other people have five different responses to what I'm yeah. about to say and seem extraordinarily fractured. So good luck to you. <laughs> the other thing that's striking about the speech is Trump gets in his way so often. He causes himself self-inflicted wounds. But when you just think about the economy that he's inherited, the economy's doing fantastic, uh, or at least for certain segments of the society, he's doing really well. The, the war against ISIS has gone fantastic. If it wasn't for Trump, if it was just a nondescript candidate, this would be a fantastic first year. Mm-hmm. But we're not focusing on that. We're not talking about, I mean, he's talking about the economy, but it's not sticking. I mean, if he, if he could do more speeches like that, more stuff like Davos, the speech in Davos, it would be to his benefit. But he can't. I'm sure two days from now, he will have tweeted a bunch of dumb things. Well, I mean, like we can say that, and having watched it live, it was... It would be really intently listening, and then he would say something like, Americans are dreamers too, and I would recoil in my seat like it was a friggin' horror movie, or someone got shot. And it was it was that. It, like, it was... His tweeting, but in real time for an hour and a half. And it was it was really frightening sometimes. It was hilarious. I loved every minute of it. I mean, it's interesting because I like I all the themes of the Trump presidency were there. The the immigration stuff, the nationalism stuff, the, you know, the kind of red meat for the base. But my reaction to it. From I, I didn't see the whole thing, but looking at the watching clips and and stuff of it, my my reaction to it was that it seems sort of mild, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's I think that's sort of how far we've come, right? Because when you compare this to the whatever we call it last year when he gave the speech when it wasn't officially yeah. a State of the Union or his inaugural address, yes. right? Um, this seemed very toned down. But if I can step out of the Trump presidency and look at what he was talking about and the stuff he was saying. It, it was pretty strong language, right? Lots of kind of dog whistle politics and that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was it's interesting the ways in which our perspective. I mean, we talk about that a lot, but um, I see that with the speech, the ways in which our perspective has, has changed. I, I totally agree with that, but I do think this was way more subtle. So it was a more moderate speech. It was more I mean, he talked about unity. Some of the intentionally provocative things were left out, even if they were there in a, a more subtle, quiet way. This was this was a definitely more professional speech. And he stayed on script and all of that. 
and, but he still managed to get the message out, yes. right? Like, the, yeah. I mean, the people who, who like, <clears throat> the, the Trump supporters were very happy with the speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that I, that you don't, I would like to think that Trump doesn't particularly like having as supporters were excited too, right? David Duke thought it was a great speech, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, David I mean, Duke that, loves him. <laughs> but that's, that is, and I, I, that sounds weird to say this, but that that's sort of a, a um, sign of a successful speech, right? Like the, the calm rhetoric, but getting sort of the message across to your, I, I don't want to say that David Duke is his base. I'm not trying to make that point, but right. The, the, you know, the people yeah. who feel strongly about immigration and whatnot, they heard what they wanted to hear and you bill heard a moderate speech, yeah, right? Sure. So he, he kind of, was successful in that which is though. more effective right it's a more effective right. way of pursuing his agenda because it's not going to alienate although i think to, to nick's or phil's earlier point i don't think any of this matters uh, today i saw something where they were looking at polling and uh, reviews of obama's 2010 speech and people loved it they said it was fantastic and great and it got higher approval ratings than this one for trump did he still lost 63 seats in the midterm elections mm-hmm. in the house so it, it, this is not really a predictor of what's going to come this speech could have been really good or really horrible i, I I think in many ways, just like we were talking about last week, the shutdown of the government, this is a two-day story, and then we're on to something else. I I, I, I do enjoy that you guys, or at least you, Bill, thought it was a, a more moderate mm-hmm. speech while there was a lot, there was a ton of rhetoric about um, respecting the flag and yeah. putting that in there, uh, building the border wall, dreamers, you know, Americans are dreamers too. Sure. Uh, keeping Guantanamo open. Keeping Guantanamo open. Uh, having the families of um, people who've been killed by illegal immigrants in the audience. That's true. It was the North Korean guy with the crutches. The North Korean guy with his North Korean yeah. crutches. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, yeah. you're you're right. <laughs> but the delivery, how he, you're right. The substance it was masterfully delivered yeah. from it, a conservative Republican standpoint. There was no North Korea. I have a bigger nuclear button than you, kind of delivery right. but it was still much of the same substance mm-hmm. if, if i had a transcript of that speech and i got in a time machine and went back three years and gave it to you bill you <laughs> would true. say holy shit this is the president's state of the union <laughs> that's because we're, we're so used to the prison now <laughs> it, it, it was crazy and, and like i said i i don't think it would have been nearly as effective if the democrats had started to coalesce around a a single Mm -hmm. central platform. But the fact that they had five different responses already geared up on multiple, you know, cable channels, realistically that had nothing to do with politics. Half of them didn't. Uh, They just, they seem they're playing identity politics. Like they, they always do. And they're, you know, these factionalized groups that don't necessarily coalesce around anything besides the fact that they don't like Trump. That's the that's the problem. Now, this is a challenge for the Democrats is they've got such constituencies. It's easier for the Republicans because you're large it's a largely white audience. Democrats have uh, a much more complex mosaic to appeal to. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, okay. Nick likes mosaic. Okay, <laughs> what Nick before we went on air, Nick and I were talking about the grumpy democratic behavior. There was there was a few boos and hisses. Uh, Nancy Pelosi in all black, <laughs> uh, looking grumpy, really looking uh, cranky. Same thing with uh, Chuck Schumer. Is there anything to make of this? Is this appropriate? Inappropriate? I mean, separate from the person in the office, is there a requirement to show greater respect to the office of the presidency, or is this all just kind of part of the State of the Union now? Or, uh, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, my, I mean, my reaction is, I, I don't know. We we see lots of this. I I, I don't. My my tendency is I just finished talking about German politics and like the separation after World War II of the present, like the symbolism of the office from the you know politics of the office. So, you know, I'm I'm maybe primed in a certain way, but I I don't think there's any obligation to like show loyalty to the office of the presidency, right? If you think that this president is bad and it would go for the opposite, right? If you are a Republican and you think that Barack Obama is awful, I don't think that you have, you, you have to have this like respect. I mean, being there and not interrupting is some level of respect, right? This idea that you are expected to sort of, you know, cheer on anything that he or she says is, I, I think dangerous. Now, I mean, having said all that, again, if the speech doesn't really matter, I don't know that you know, if if Nancy, if people are truly concerned about Trump's policies and think it's really dangerous for the for the country, then you have to do more than show up and wear black and frown. Right. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know that it's, it's not actually accomplishing anything, but I also don't have any expectation that they have to be reverent or supportive or anything like that. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. And realistically, this is nothing new, at least in the sense of you know, half of the aisle not applauding or, or standing for particular uh, talking points that the the president is giving. The fact that there were just these audible just groans and hisses <laughs> and then people getting up and leaving in the middle of the speech on, on the Democrat side. I Like, I get it if you don't agree with anything that he's saying. But if you're that virulently opposed to what is being said, then don't go. Mm-hmm. You, you're, you're not necessarily. <sighs> people are going to understand more if you don't show up and you tell them why, as opposed to you acting like a thirteen-year-old and rolling your eyes and fixing your dentures clearly as much as you possibly could. I'm going to say that about her because I met her and she's self-righteous and a, she's a shitty person. Um, sorry, that has nothing to do with the fact that she needed to fix her dentures. I just wanted to say that because I believe it. Nick's um, views do not necessarily represent <laughs> the views of it. Um, it, it, Just, if you're there, you know, you there have to be there has to be at least one point that you agree with. So either politely clap or just sit there and nod your head or do something and pull your shit together for an hour and a half. Otherwise, do not attend. I see it here. I'm I'm torn on this because I do want to respect the office. I think there's something to that, absolutely. And you go back to who's the guy's name that yelled "You lie" at Obama? That you know that felt like inappropriate. Yes, <laughs> you think? <laughs> well, but, but here's the. I think about British Parliament, where you know the Prime Minister gets up, and if you if you haven't seen this, you should watch it on TV. It's it's fascinating, right? They boo, they hiss, they make all sorts of noise. It feels like democracy. And we've created the State of the Union where it's so prim and proper, but like we let a little bit of frowning sneak in. I, I, I don't know. I I don't think they should boo because that's a totally different thing. But the whole thing seems like a just a I don't know a pomp and circumstance. And the most exciting thing is when the guy says the Mister Speaker, the President of the United States. That's all I really need to hear. Mm-hmm. And we can go home. Well, yeah, and like that's it wasn't even like not every Democrat was like that either. Like I'll give Chuck Schumer high marks for holding his shit together because he he looked like he was listening intently and he. You know, clapped at certain points and was nodding along, and you know he looked engaged. Yeah, and a lot of them did. You know, they yeah. stood up and clapped, and it's it's clearly not a unified front, which also didn't look good. Yeah, the sure. fact that they were that fractured on it, but it it I don't know. Like I I don't know if it's because I 
lean more conservative than than liberal and as much as i don't agree with a lot of the president's stances on things i the opposing end of the spectrum just it yeah. does not no. their uh, actions don't leave a good it doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth yeah i, I think that's a normal reaction and again i think most of this is it doesn't matter in two days. So. It, I mean, it's all representative of the state of politics in this country, right? right? Because yeah, it was exactly. the you know the inverse or the opposite was true under Obama, right? Where you were talking about people, and so, yeah. I mean, the the it, it's it's all the 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 frustrating things that we've talked about yeah. about party identity and you know playing to the audience and trying to win, and it's not about policy and right. compromise and all of those things that frustrate us about the state of American politics play out in that room. absolutely in some ways that's why i felt like it was so similar to last week with the government shutdown it was all of that about the stuff about government that it just just grinds on me and mm. it, it's not enlightening it's not exciting it doesn't make you feel good to be an american uh, yeah you don't you don't you didn't feel like and, and this is again where i think about how i think the state of the union has changed donald trump was not there to try to win support from congress for his policies, right? He was there making a speech to the American public trying to win votes, right? And it feels like at some point in the past, the president went trying to win support for his agenda from the people in that room, which yes. meant reaching across the aisle, trying to get compromise, trying to encourage, you know, making concessions. And and that seems to be a bygone era yeah. that and maybe it will come back someday. But right now it's, it's we're so far from that. But he said that it, that, uh, that he's willing to work with people on the other side of the aisle. He said it yeah. in his speech. He he's, read it, Nick. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> he doesn't believe it. I'm, I'm sorry. I confused the two. Can, can we switch to my favorite topic of the week, mm -hmm. Mueller and Memogate? Mm -hmm. So for me, this one, I, I'm excited to talk about this. So a little bit of background for the listeners. Uh, this week we learned that Trump tried to fire special counsel Robert Mueller, but relented when White House counsel Don McGahn threatened to resign. Additionally, the release the memo gate uh, efforts by congressional Republicans have taken our political system to the brink of insanity. And I will say, yesterday was I was pulling hair out. Uh, Carter Page made a return. The deputy director of the FBI steps down, and it looks like uh, the deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein might be the next to go. Let's start with the memo written by Republican staffers for uh, Representative Devin Nunes of California. Uh, so apparently, the memo centers on the fall twenty sixth application for a wiretap on Carter Page, a one-time Trump campaign official. The memo is said to criticize law enforcement officials for including information provided by uh, Steele, Mr. Steele, in the application uh, without adequately explaining to the judge that this is where they got the information from. Now, the FBI came out today and said they absolutely condemn the release of this. Uh, there are so many interesting angles here. I mean, the, in some ways, the, the firing of Mueller is a big story, but this whole memo thing and the way in which this attack on the FBI and the Department of Justice gets to the very core of partisanship undermining democratic institutions. So I, I was upset about this yesterday, and then now I think I'm tired. But I, did this bother you guys? Sure. I mean, okay, so the, there's, there's so many aspects to this memo. Uh, yeah, there, there is... I mean, there's the aspect of the potential impropriety of the FBI in, you know, having a political agenda. Um, there's the aspect, I mean, the reason why the release of this memo is controversial is because it's classified. Um, the idea that this will be, is this the first time this has ever yes, happened? Yes, first time um, that the House Intelligence Committee has will have released this. It goes to the president who can stop it. Stop it. But Trump said... 
he's 100% going to approve it. Right, of course. Even though he hasn't read it. <laughs> so... Right, because it calls it, the whole idea is to call into question the the, the Mueller investigation. I, the idea that Republicans, I mean, this the party of sort of law and order, and the president is running on law and order that that they are threatening or are not threatening. They they are releasing classified information for. A, I mean, this is where it gets back to whether it's for political gain or not, it right? Is but Phil. essentially, it's for political <laughs> gain, right? They're releasing classified information for political gain. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's deeply concerning, right? The attack on the F and it's weird to see the Republican party yes. attacking the FBI and attacking the department of justice. And, and you have all of these weird, you know, groups that should be allied with one another who are turning on each other. And, um, and that doesn't even get at the fact that this is a memo written by a Republican who has worked with the Trump administration right. to write these things in the past. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, everything gets muddied. So this is it was a FISA warrant. This is it starts in the Obama administration, but it continues to the Trump administration, a FISA warrant to look into Carter Page, who had been the allegations in this FISA warrant is that he had become a foreign operative of the Russians. And so initially the Obama administration approved this. But why it's relevant now is that Rob Rosenstein approved it. So that's what they're thinking is that that if he was relying on the Steele dossier, mm -hmm. this is grounds for Trump to fire Rosenstein. Uh, and that's important, too, because if he's gone, he's the one who decides what to do with if Mueller eventually brings a report that he turns over to the Department of Justice, Rosenstein will be the one to determine whether that goes to the public or does it go to Congress? So th this is a really, really important thing. It's a brilliant yeah. strategic it is. move. It's, it's almost Nixonian in that sense. Uh, and Carter, it's just a, a little bit of background. Carter Page was absolutely deserving of a FISA warrant. In 20, right. 2015, there was this Russian spy ring that was broken up by the United States. And they somehow they got like a listening device to this Russian spy ring. And they kept talking about one individual that they felt they had turned and they named him as like individual one. It was Carter Page, and, and totally separate from the Russia Gate stuff. Like they had just and Carter Page him. admitted it. He, yes. he admitted that he had been in contact with these people yes. and didn't realize they were Russian operatives. And the FBI or CIA or whatever informed him of yes. this. So yeah, the, the investigation into Carter Page goes way back, long before any of these people who were involved, before Trump and Russia Gate happened. The allegations in this memo, um, are, if they're true implicate like federal judges i mean the, the conspiracy to pull this off would have to be massive yeah. um but again i don't know that that it, it's not that that really matters right it's casting doubt on the on the the process and the impartiality of, of a few people that are involved um it, to but me, that's this, scary right yes, like the, right. the whole the, the threat of the rule of law yeah i mean it yeah because you have oh, i'm sorry go ahead nick uh, no i was just gonna <clears throat> feel i mean you made a good point earlier in uh you know these are institutions and and you know the um reigning political party should realistically be allied with each other um right. through just about anything what what do you think is i mean besides the fact that there's a weird power dynamic and, you know, attempting to, to grasp on to or keep power. Um, like what has caused this, this massive, like, like we're getting rid of any sort of um, um, credibility that we have with these organizations purely to stay in power. Yes. But 
like was there is there a a dearth of of um experience and knowledge that went away with older republicans and their new members in there or is this just the political climate that's around now it's a a great question i I, I don't know phil what do you think i think it's both i I feel like when i look at elected officials i feel like there's been a generational change like I, i look back to the previous generation of politicians the ted kennedys and the bob doles and there was a like they were i mean they had strong views right they were members of parties and they wanted their party to win but they were mostly concerned with passing policy right and so you saw them working with each other and reaching across the aisle and it feels like in the last i don't know what is the i don't know what it is that is the precipitating factor but in the last 15 years this whole new wave of elected officials seems to be not about policy first, but about, you know, winning first. And that's, you know, you that that you see that in the kind of the House leadership. And it, it's interesting to see the the ways in which I think this shows the extent to which Trump has won. Like, he has won control of the Republican Party. Yes. Um, and that, you know, that there was some speculation or allegation early on that Republicans were going along with Trump many of whom spoke out against him in the election were going along with him because they had policies they wanted to see passed right mm-hmm. but here we are we have the pat tax cuts we have the you know the, the tax cuts have been passed the run at obamacare has has been tried and the the individual mandate has been um repealed and and they they seem fully on board the the amount to be gained from sticking with him is it seems gone and and he he seems to have solidified his control over them um, I, I agree. Although I don't think this is the typical Democrat Republican divide. I think this is a fight within the Republican Party again between the Devin Nunes, who's in, fully embraced Trump, and other older, I don't know, maybe like the more establishment Republicans who are uncomfortable with this. Because even Paul Ryan came out today and said, well, uh, you know, we believe the memo should be released, but let's keep it, you know, this is absolutely separate from the Mueller investigation. So he's trying to protect the FBI and Mueller. But the reality is you can't do that by releasing this memo. The whole intent is to attack the FBI and suggest that there's partisan motivations. So Devin Nunes, like this memo, he's never even seen the original intelligence. So it's it's a memo right. talking about this. Uh, so it's, to me, this feels like attacking a core democratic institution for political gain, given that ultimately Not- Mueller is going to release a report and if you can make this whole process, every Democratic institution partisan, there's no truth here. When that report comes out, Trump can say, hey, this is just partisan politics. Uh, it, yeah, nothing mean, to see mean, here. Democratic institutions in a small D. Yeah, that's of, right. It's small, I'm sorry, small D. Yeah, not Democrat. Yeah, absolutely. Not party. Uh, so uh, as somebody who believes in democracy, this is and democratic norms and institutions. This is really, really troubling. Uh, and an independent you know, Department of Justice and independent of FBI the, to politicize all of this is, yeah, it's it's disconcerting. You have Christopher Ray, a Republican appointee, Rod Rosenstein, a, Repu- a Trump appointee who are saying, don't do this, don't do this. This is problematic. Robert Mueller, who is a Republican, you know, all of them are saying, yeah. let this investigation play out. And, and Nunes, De- Devin Nunes, who by his own home paper, the Fresno Bee, was called a Trump stooge this oh, week. No. Wow. I just loved harsh words uh, from the bee. 
<laughs> the Republican attack on the FBI is really kind of fascinating that we are, you know, a, what, a, a little over a year into this. The, the FBI, who, um, you know, Comey comes out and announces the, the Clinton email investigation right before the election. And we've had this discussion and debate, and you know, whether it swung the election or not. It, it was a significant point in the election. Um, and they got a lot of criticism for that. And part of the reason that has come out about why they came out and and announced that they were investigating or reopening the Clinton investigation was because people in the FBI, the, the fear was if they didn't announce it, people in the FBI would leak it because people in the FBI were so anti-Clinton, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. We have come from that point to this, like, somehow in a year, this belief that the FBI is entirely anti-Trump and, like, swung, you know, like, uh, totally pro-Clinton. And it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a bizarre swing. It, what What's bizarre about it is the willingness of people to sort of um, yes. accept this line um, and just kind of take it in that the FBI is a partisan institution and... Mm-hmm. Because of all the institutions in the American government that you would it would seem to be difficult to label as a liberal institution, it is the FBI, which you're right it is is generally thought that most FBI officials are more conservative. Now they don't have you, they don't know real data on that, but absolutely, it's not like the State Department where there's a bunch of liberals running around. It's not the EPA, <laughs> right? It's not the EPA. Oh, I, I, so I, I guess the the telling thing will be. Uh, should the Democrats retake um, the House or the Senate in 2018, do you think we will see this trend continue from the opposite perspective? What what trend do you mean? The politicization of the FBI and stuff like that, or the the attack on the on the judiciary? What do you mean by this uh, trend? attacks on uh, federal institutions or democratic institutions if it doesn't fit with their? Um, um, what's the word? Political narrative, I guess, or if there's something that problematic that comes up for a particular member or the party in general, do you see them using similar tactics to either undermine the opposing party or democratic institutions? For me, the default is question is no, only because it feels to me like Trump is the first president to do this, and in both Democrats to and this Repo- extent, yeah, exactly. To this- to, to politicize these institutions. So I would hope not. And if they do, Nick, I'll, I'll, I'll rain thunder on them. <laughs> so I, I tend to think that they that it won't happen to this extent, not because I think the Democrats are necessarily better people, but because they're worse at the game of politics. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think this is the danger of it, though, is that the idea of being able to speak up or to critique an institution if it does show bias or if it is, you know, if there is some level of corruption or problem in the way they're operating, that's important, right? We, you should do that if that's happening. It, but it's this uh, this tendency over the last decade to essentially claim that everything they do is partisan that totally undermines the institution. It undermines the ability to be critical. It makes everything seem cynical. And, it, you know, it, it takes away the the ability to actually, in the times when it matters, stand up and, and critique an institution for making bad policy or bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Well said, Parker. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably talk beers. Yeah, huh? yeah, probably. That was a good way to finish, Phil, though. <laughs> you really brought it home. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. What are you drinking, Philly? Uh, I'm drinking a Red Rack Ale from the Woodstock Inn Brewery in Woodstock, New Hampshire. 
I, I feel like every week I say, it was good. <laughs> but that's kind of how I, I liked this. At, at one point, when I first started drinking, it, it, it's a like a red ale, which I, I have been enjoying lately. I first drank it. I, I thought, this is really nice. It's got a nice flavor. I like it. And then about halfway through, it felt really a little too bubbly and carbonated uh, and soda-y. And then I got enough alcohol in me that it tasted good again. <laughs> so it's a roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Nick, what are you drinking? Uh, so I had a Lagunitas Something Easy Ale, which I hadn't seen before. Um, kind of similar to Little Something Something, uh, but a little lighter. Uh, and kind of a uh, uh, a, a more pronounced uh, grapefruity. I, I almost it's got like a hint of peach in there, too. Ooh. It's very summery. I'm going to be drinking a lot of yeah. this when the weather turns nice. Everything they do is good. It's really, really yeah. good. Yeah. So, yeah, highly recommend. Hmm. I'm not a big fan of fruit beers. Right, well, What's wrong with you, I'll have to try that. Opinion, then. <laughs> so I had uh, a zombie dust from Three Floyds. This is one of these beers that it's hard to get your hands on. And I will say I went to the liquor store, and every time I go to the liquor store, I look for this. It's never there. There were two six-packs there. Nice. And my moral dilemma was, do I buy both of them? Yes. Well, <laughs> but then here's the thing. These are How hard. is that a dilemma? Well, because I'm taking the enjoyment away from somebody else who might come in and be delighted to find okay, another Okay, comrade. Well, I did. Yeah, calm down. Friend. All right, I, I bought yeah. both of them. So, you know, I will say, like, I sat there for a second because there was nobody around. <laughs> and then I bought 12. Right. Uh, this is, uh, there are some beers that are hyped up as, like, you know, top 10 beers in the country that don't live up to the hype. For me, this does. This is just... An incredible, drinkable, but it has a little bit of the citrusy flavor to it. They like just absolutely perfected an IPA, and uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's good. And then I just started my second beer from Buckle Down Brewery, a, a friend of the podcast, uh, and it's called Xavier McDaniel, a former NBA player, an IPA, and this it's a good IPA, but this is a, a hefty IPA. It's it's thick. You see it, Nick? It's thick. It's very yeah. thick. Yeah. But also. Not a double IPA. No, just a regular IPA, but still, you know, it brings the heft, so. <laughs> but a good beer. <laughs> All right, speed round time, Nicholas. Uh, yes. I'll let you open your zombie Yay. dust. Yeah. Okay. All right, so our first topic in the speed round, the doomsday clock is down to two minutes. All right, smoke them if you got them, boys, because the end is near. Uh, the bulletin of the the bulletin of the atomic scientist advanced the symbolic doomsday clock a notch closer to the end of humanity Thursday, moving it ahead by 30 seconds after what the organization called a quote grim assessment of the state of geopolitical affairs. Now this is the closest the world has ever been to the hour of the apocalypse. Uh, the group cited the failures of President Trump, North Korea, and climate change as uh, three critical factors. Hey, Phil, I'll throw this one to you. Why Why do these atomic scientists worry so much? <laughs> just, They're nerds. <laughs> so, geez, does it really feel like we're two minutes away from the apocalypse? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the nervous part of me thinks that they worry so much because they know the most about it. That's um, right. I, it's interesting. I, I hadn't read that. I... I uh, have they taken into account environmental issues in the past? It seems so, like it's always been basically about nuclear weapons in the past. Mm -hmm. it, it has always been nuclear weapons, but now they're saying that nuclear weapons and climate change are almost on par with each other, that these are the two factors that are most threatening to human civilization. 
especially when you factor in Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. So both of whom don't care about the environment or the threat of nuclear war. I, I did. I sent you this tweet uh, today. Yes. Steve Sademan, who's a, a you know a well-known, prominent IR uh, guy, uh, international relations guy, um, was tweeting today that you know that sim- we've talked about this in previous weeks. That similar to the lead up to Iraq, that he is almost as convinced as he was in 2002. He was convinced that war with Iraq was coming in, in the, the following year, and he is almost that convinced that war with North Korea is coming. That terrifies me yes. when people who are in the know my initial reaction is to think come on that's that's overstating it but i continue to see people who like are the the most informed most intelligent people in terms of international relations and foreign affairs that i know of who continue to say this that scares me and they're all very sensible (laughs) i don't agree nick i don't agree okay why I, i i mean i i i can see the similarities to those conflicts but at the same time you have to think about the different theaters that we're talking about. You go into Iraq, realistically, they have a standing army that we know we can kick their ass. There's realistically no major um, advanced economies in the region that are uh, at um, at threat if we invade the country at that point, besides you know Iran, I guess, and Kuwait again, but they're not going to do that twice. Uh, they don't have the means to do so. If we decided to go with no, uh, go to war with North Korea, you're talking about, again, which is something we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, you're a few miles away from one of the largest, most uh, advanced economies on the planet. North Korea has a huge standing army, and they have nuclear weapons. I, there are so many factors in here that would really i regardless of what you think about trump himself this has to give pause to people who are in the administration who are actually going to make the on the ground decisions that would prevent them from doing this i you know the middle east is the middle east but you're talking about something that can throw not only the entire region uh which a lot of it is economically viable compared to the middle east um but would throw the world into chaos Go ahead, Phil. I, I, um, I'm not. I don't want to say that you're necessarily wrong in this particular situation Fine. because I I think you may well <laughs> be right in this particular situation. But I think that we have a tendency to to just assume that these things are impossible when all through history there are examples in which it was insane to go to war and it was clear the cost and we did it right and not yep. just I don't mean just we the United States although I that is true. But humans in general, right, in which we look, we stare at the tremendous cost of war and say, you know, screw it, we're doing it or or it's important enough that we're going to do it. And so, you know, I I I agree with you in that there's nothing rational about the idea that this would happen. But I don't have as much faith that that rationality wins out in the long run. I I I will not say that you're wrong in this particular point <laughs> oh, either. We're coming together. <laughs> it's <laughs> I I mean I think that warfare has changed so much since you know those conflicts which we thought were completely unfathomable unfathomable. Wow. Okay. It's good. Um, we've gone we've had nuclear weapons since the the mid 1940s at this point and realistically earlier than that we have never actually gone to nuclear war because we know what the cost of that would be i think we we reached a point in warfare where there is more of uh 
a, a, um, a fatalistic, um, you know, mutually assured destruction mentality that prevents that sort of conflict from actually maturing. This is a fun philosophical. Shut up, yeah. Bill. I'm talking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're out of time. This is no. This is a, I, this. I mean, I think this is this is a fun point to think about because um, we do tend to assume that that nuclear weapons are so bad they have changed war and we will never do it. But we thought that about aerial bombardment. We thought that about machine guns. <clears throat> we thought about about the rifle. Like every. You know, we have had all of these technological advances that we think are barbaric and inhumane and will end war. And then somebody uses them and everyone's like, well, I guess that's just part of war now. And so <laughs> I I mean, it is it it is of a different level. But um, I don't know. I, I don't I don't put it. It's not it's not beyond it's not beyond reason to me that that will just, nuclear war will happen and it will become part of, you know. Of war. In my American foreign policy course this week, we've been doing the Cuban Missile Crisis, like an intense study. And Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense in the Kennedy administration, uh, he did this ultimately fog of war video with Errol Morris later in his life. And he said this quote where he says, the, the combination of human fallibility and the existence of nuclear weapons means that at some point we are going to destroy nations. This is going to happen. And it strikes me that we've now entered an era where Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump are now controlling the fate of the world in their hands. And human fallibility as, is at its highest. So I, I do think this is a uh, – I think it's legitimate to move the clock closer. I also think as human beings, and especially in this era of Trump, we're so focused on the day-to-day -day sort of crazy stories, the palace of intrigue, all of that, that we're losing the forest for the trees. feels like we're – we're running off the edge of a cliff and not paying attention to that. It just you know, at full speed, whether it's climate or whether it's uh, it's nuclear war. I think I think the doomsday clock is is pretty accurate here. So, and it doesn't mean it's going to be in the Trump era, but I think you know, yes, it's only been since the '40s that we've had nuclear weapons, but that's such a short time frame. You know, it's. it's I mean, realistically, though, when you look at the advances in warfare, especially between World War One and World War Two, we were real good about making those things effective and useful immediately after the first conflict. It's been a long, relatively speaking, a long, long time since we've had access to that type of weaponry, and we so, haven't used it. You minus those two times. I, I realize that we're way over time, but I think there there is something about that that very aspect so it can be reassuring but i think that also is part of the problem and that it has been so the changing nature of war it has been so long since we have been enmeshed in like such a you know a massive war or felt war like personally in the united states that the impersonal aspect of it i think works against it to some extent right sure. that it, when yeah. as 70 years go by since the last time nuclear weapons were used, then, you know, it becomes this kind of abstract, distant thing, mm -hmm. um, which is part of the danger, right? That we're that it, we're not acutely aware of what, you know, we're sort of abstractly aware of the implications of it. But, you're saying we should um, do more testing in the Pacific. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it's, there are still there are elements within the Defense Department that are once again arguing for tactical nuclear weapons. So this is I mean, this is an ongoing conversation within the Defense Department. Do you develop these very specific tactical nukes, which can be effective, you know? And then once you start using those, it becomes easier to use bigger and bigger, bigger, bigger ones. So mm -hmm. yeah, that All was right. a long five minutes. But it was, good one, it was good. It was good. All right, topic number two: Donald Trump and Jay Z. So President Donald Trump took aim at Jay Z this <laughs> we week. We go from nuclear war to this. <laughs> yes. Shit. 
noting that his economic policies have led, this is Donald Trump, to the lowest rate of black unemployment ever recorded. Specifically, he tweeted, quote, somebody please inform Jay-Z that because of my policies, black unemployment has just been reported to be at the lowest rate ever recorded. Um, So this was, uh, Jay-Z was on uh, CNN with Van Jones, and Van Jones said, asked him, is it... uh, is it terrible to say that uh, Donald Trump has put money back in our pocketbooks? Uh, and Jay-Z responded saying, no, because it's not about money at the end of the day. Money doesn't equate to happiness. It doesn't. That's missing the whole point. Now, the latest unemployment rate for African Americans is at 6.8%, while the rate for uh, white people is 3.7%. Uh, that being said, both the African American rate and the overall rate have steadily declined since 2010. Can we all agree that this confirms that Donald Trump is not a racist? Yes. <laughs> yep. Move on to the next, <laughs> Move on topic. next topic. All right. So does Donald Trump deserve any credit for the fact that the black un- unemployment rate has dropped? Uh, or is this silly to give him credit for this? Oh, I stumped you both. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, this is classic, you know, first year in office. You're going to take credit for a significant amount of uh, work that the previous administration has done. Having said that, the economy, like we talked about, is doing better. There are more t- uh, opportunities out there. Job growth numbers are generally pretty steady and, and positive. Uh, I think some of it can be attributed to some of the policies, question mark, that uh, that this administration has put in his, place. But His pro-race policies. His pro-race <laughs> policies, yes. Um, no, I, I, I mean... Yeah, look at, you know, you, you said it right there. Look at the statistics. The the data show that this is the trend for the past decade. So, mm-hmm. meh. Yeah. <laughs> Phil, what do you think? I, I mean, it, it, I was going to say, typically, the fact of the matter is that typically the president doesn't have much of a role in the economy. Um, I mean, there are, there are clear examples of counterexamples to that, like the Bush administration handling of the financial crisis and whatnot that had implications. But for the most part, the this is the great irony, I guess. The president and his policies don't have much of an impact on the economy. And yet the economy is also one of the strongest predictors of how we vote. And so, yeah, it's just it's just dumb. <laughs> this back and forth. Don't attack the topic, Phil. <laughs> Did Jay-Z really say that money doesn't buy happiness? Yeah, did. that did. come out of his he mouth? Yep. I just want to point that yep. out. It doesn't. Right. That's missing the whole point. Anyways, yeah. continue. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's, he's not necessarily the best messenger for the... Uh, the he is not. The, the struggling African-American, you know, wealthy, whatever, the, the, <laughs> the working class of the African-American community. What, what do you guys think of the fact that, you know, I, I think Trump... You know, it was a, two weeks ago we had this conversation about whether Trump is a racist, and I think the evidence suggests he probably is. But there's a difference between the racist who is always a racist, racist, and somebody like Trump who tries to make an argument that he's not, that he that he's looking out for the blacks with his unemployment rates, and that he's trying to build the economy. Does that complicate our view of Trump, or is he just trying to defend? justify some of his antics i i guess I, I don't is there is there more to donald trump or can we just accept the the asshole you know africa con- comment i mean I, I don't know you can say shithole that's that's right I'm, that's right forget <laughs> we're, we're explicit <laughs> uh i mean I, I i think the reality is that no i i shouldn't say no one the vast majority of people don't want to 
think that they don't want to be a racist, right? I think that Donald Trump, of course, is going to defend himself when people <laughs> accuse him of being a racist. That's a natural reaction. Nobody wants other than, you know, David Duke. And so there are right, there are right. people who want to be a racist, but the, the majority of people don't want to be a racist. And so when when people allege that against you, the natural reaction is to defend yourself. But again, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you have to look at the body of evidence and see sort of the, the policies and the and the 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 rhetoric that is used and the sort of actions and that's where you kind of draw these conclusions so i I don't think it's necessarily incompatible or all that surprising that donald trump sort of lashes out and wants to defend himself when people accuse him of being a racist that at the same time doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. his core sort of worldview doesn't have a racist tilt to it right Right. though again back to our sort of the podcast theme two things can be true i guess so uh, all right i guess a counter to that so if you were a, a Republican, a conservative Republican who was watching the speech last night and you were listening to uh, what Trump was saying and he was talking about tax cuts and 401ks and the economy and jobs and things like that. And your world viewpoint is I'm trying to keep food on the table and keep my yep. job and make sure I have enough for retirement and have my kids go to school. I don't care about social programs or illegal immigration or anything like that because that that is not what is central to, to my life. Does that make them racist because they don't care about those things? No. Because that's the viewpoint that I keep thinking that he has in the back of his mind but he's just not very good at hiding the fact that it's a little it's a little bit more pronounced than what an average person would the, would think. The, prob- the problem is that he combines that viewpoint with this consistent rhetoric about building a wall and immigrants taking our jobs. So if you just took sort of a laissez-faire, like I, I want to encourage economic growth, I'm going to treat everyone equally, you know, we want small government, That that's not... You know, it's when you combine that with some level of kind of blaming, you know, economic problems on immigrants or Hispanics or African-American or Muslims, no Muslims in the country. I mean, those those things, I think just what you said, Nick. No, absolutely not. Right. But he's he's but those things are also I I probably should have started with those things, too. If you're saying, yeah, build a wall, keep the illegal immigrants out. Uh, Realistically, most terrorists who come in who are, are, are Muslims, at least perceived. Um, does that make them rate? Yeah, I, I mean, in the in the mind of a cons, you know an average oh, conservative yeah. Republican, yeah. um, which probably is disingenuous it, for me saying that, does that make them racist because those are their concepts and they have other things to worry about? And they said, well, this is going to make things better. You know, the administration or the government in general is saying this is going to make your life better. There's a line, and it's easy to trip one way or the other. Uh, I think if it's just the Adam Smith laissez-faire, let everybody pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, all Americans who are here should be privileged over those who aren't, that's one argument. But Trump goes further than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> We're out of time. No, I mean... I, I... <laughs> right. We're in that yeah, minefield. The, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll stick with race, though, because we're moving to Poland for top <laughs> for our next topic. <laughs> so, all right. So this week we're going international. Uh, Polish lawmakers voted Friday for a bill that would fine or jail people who blamed Poland or Poles for Nazis atro- Nazi atrocities committed on its soil during World War II, including the death of hundreds of thousands of Jews at Auschwitz. The law still needs final approval from the Senate and the country's president, but nonetheless received a strong rebuke from Israel. 
the Israeli foreign minister summoned Poland's ambassador to object to the bill, which is still going through parliament. Now, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, we will under no circumstances accept any attempt to rewrite history. Now, to me, this is a really interesting question because Poland oftentimes feels that they are attacked because Auschwitz is in Poland, that people talk about Polish death camps. The reality is that it was Germans who came into Poland who organized and ran these camps. That being said, there was some complicity. Complicity? Yeah, there you go. People uh, were complicit. Yes. Yes. That. Uh, Poles Good with this. So, so I understand why Poland is is pursuing this. That being said, history is messy. So, so Phil, you are expert in in all things Europe. Uh, what's your sense of what's going on here? I mean, Poland certainly has moved to the right. This Law and Order Party in Poland uh, is is not particularly progressive on certain issues. But what, what's your read on this? I. I... I kind of end up going all sorts of different directions with this because I, I understand, I sympathize with the sort of Polish desire to separate themselves, to say yeah. that, you know, these were not Polish death camps, right? They were death camps that were in Poland, but they weren't Poles. It wasn't the Polish government that was doing this. So I understand the desire to sort of separate yourself from that. It's from Nazis. Um, That's I, a legitimate right, desire. Right. Poland, I mean... Like of all the countries in Europe, Poland, I mean, massive tragedy what happened to Poland. The, the sort of weird irony of all of this is that Poland historically was an incredibly diverse place. It had the world's mm-hmm. largest Jewish population. Um, and what happened that because of the the the, the massive loss, uh, the tragedy that was World War II, what happened in Poland, Poland emerged from World War II a largely homogenous um, very religious and Catholic country. And so it, it, it's been a weird kind of twist that has occurred. So I understand Poland's desire to sort of separate themselves. Um, I also am highly critical of anything. I mean, this is about free speech, right? Like if someone calls a Polish death camp, then your response is not to throw them in jail. Your response is to tell them that that boy, that's wrong. And that's a, an improper interpretation of history. And again, it like you're saying, history is full of shades of gray, right? So Poland is not 100% innocent in all of this either. And so, you know, that. Yeah, I don't I there's lots of kind of, you know, absolute statements from either side when in fact um I I don't know. Like can't we recognize the there there seems to be a larger lesson about human fallibility and the tragedy of history here that that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to have like national labels to it. Yeah. Nicholas I, I don't really have any other. I, I completely agree with those. Oh, got it. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, the fact that you're going to jail people, it's the, the irony of that is just, it's insane. And the fact that you're not going to use this as an educational moment, mm-hmm. and I, it just, when I saw that, it just, it blew my mind. It, it sounded, it sounded like something out of the onion, mm-hmm. but... It, Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. No, I, I, I just like I said, I, I completely agree, and it's, it's, it's disconcerting that it's getting to the point in multiple places around the world where there's just this need to, you know, uh, for to to self protect and and to become insular and to think that, you know, any sort of um, disconcerting comment or behavior towards you. Then that makes you that makes the 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 other person your your enemy. It's not 
There's no room for debate. There's no room for discussion. It's you said something that I don't agree with. So we're we're not friends anymore. <laughs> Is I, my my the the thing that I sort of wrestle with whenever this topic comes up, and we talked about it, you know, several months ago with the Charlottesville stuff. Um, there's something that's a very American approach that to assume that that free speech is unlimited. And if you want to critique, you know, if you want to talk about the Holocaust in ways that are not necessarily accurate, then that's your right. And that's not necessarily the view in other places. And, and I really kind of I, I, again, I understand. So the German, you know, uh, instinct, which is to. You know, to criminalize uh, Holocaust deniers and and the importance of recognizing the truth of history and and all of that, I I get that I understand and I'm sympathetic to that, but I also you know it makes me uncomfortable and trying to figure out where to draw that line when you're dealing with free speech that involves hate and involves you know the extermination of entire groups of people I that, I don't. I, I have a really hard time finding like a firm footing um, when it comes to those sorts of debates. Uh, doesn't that speak to the to the extent to which you shouldn't legislate a certain no. understanding of the Holocaust? So mm. I get the Polish desire to counteract this perception of, of Polish death camps. Like I, I totally get that. I'm sympathetic to that. But the way to solve that is not to say you can't use this language anymore. We're gonna we're gonna freeze the conception of what happened here. Uh, let the conversation play out. Let historians and let the public have these conversations. Would you say the same thing to Germany? Would you say to Germany that don't don't criminalize, like have have these conversations. Let people come in and deny the Holocaust and and say that that the concentration camps are you know historic. They're 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 made up. Those aren't true. I I, I get it with the Poland thing, but I I mean I we're I, I'm sorry. Go, no, go ahead. No, I I mean realistically that that tactic hasn't really worked. Like we've seen yeah. a fairly substantial rise of the far right, whether you're talking mm-hmm. about Germany or France or Greece or a number of other countries in the European union and beyond that they may not say that outright. Um, and some do and just don't give a shit, but clearly just um, either denying or criminalizing that, uh, ideas Uh, yeah yeah, those particular ideas like it's it's just it's not effective so people are going to find a a way around it's better to it's a celebrity slope yeah Yeah, find find a middle ground where you can discuss things openly and educate people and tell them why this is not the case sure I, i struggle with germany's laws but that being said i do think there's a distinction between germany as the perpetrators of the nazi oppression and poland right so there's i think we sit back and say germany is a unique actor in history and i i am more understanding of their desire to say we are not going to let this happen than poland who is it's it's just different they were a victim yeah. uh so i don't think they have the same right to con- control speech as Germany does. And I get why that's, I, I get the, I totally <laughs> understand the victim, that. Shouldn't they have the right to like say, yeah, uh, yeah it's, 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 it's the nature of the speech. that's problematic. So, I mean, yeah. the end result is still the end result, right? right. I think yeah. the discussion should be universal. This is not something that is particular to one country or one people. Right. You're talking about the extermination of an entire segment of, right. Absolutely. of humanity. I, it's, yeah. you know, the, the, the end point that I, the thing that I want to end 
that conversation with is that this fits into a bigger pattern in Poland in, in which you have the attack on sort of democratic norms and free speech that I, I don't know that most Americans are aware of, but it's something that's really kind of heartbreaking. The, the law and order party in Poland is, is very concerning to me what's going on there. I think that's, yeah, yeah. All right, let's jump. To, we're going to stay on the international front for our next topic. Yeah. Uh, Trump has managed to piss off both Congress, the American Congress, and Russia uh, dealing with sanctions. So, uh, again, the Trump administration uh, managed a unusual, unusual feat this week, outraging both Russia's leaders in Moscow and Russia's biggest critics in Washington with its handling of a new law intended to punish Kremlin for its interference in the 2016 American elections. Uh, the State Department angered members of Congress by announcing on Monday that it did not plan to impose new sanctions called for in a measure that President Trump reluctantly signed last year. At the same time, the Treasury Department angered Moscow late Monday night with a new name and shame list identifying 210 senior Russian political uh, officials and figures that they called Russian oligarchs. Now, interestingly, they pulled that list from Forbes' 200 richest Americans. So, it, so... Congress, Americans. I'm sorry, uh, Russians, 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 sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, Richest American Russian Asians. That's right, I'm confused. It's two beers, <laughs> two beers. So Congress, in a bipartisan way, passed, passed new sanctions on Russia. It then goes to the president who has to impose those sanctions. Trump says, no, nah, we're not going to do that. Uh, the sanctions we have are an effective deterrent, but we're going to put together a list of bad guys, oligarchs, and we're going to publish that. The list pisses off Russia. The fact that Trump didn't impose congressional sanctions upsets Congress. Nothing is smart here. <laughs> nothing, nothing. None of it. <laughs> I'm done. What do you guys think? <laughs> I, I got nothing. <laughs> so I, um, I, this is kind of an interesting topic because I, uh, the, this argument that I've seen Democrats making that essentially you're the executive, right? You don't get to make the laws. You don't get to decide if the laws are enforced. You just have to enforce them. This is the thing that a lot of Republicans were pissed off about with Barack Obama in which and, and at the time Democrats sort of stood by the idea that, you know, the president doesn't have to enforce things he doesn't have to agree with. And I'm, I'm sort of I don't I'm trying to remember. I was thinking as you started introducing this, what was the one that got people so worked up? But there are other I mean, there are straightforward examples like uh, federal drug laws, right, which the Obama administration announced they weren't going to enforce. Sure. Um, and so there were lots of, you know, when this was flipped, there were lots of uh, Republicans who were pissed that they that the president didn't enforce laws and Democrats who defended it. So it's it's kind of a hard position to to be in for Democrats to critique the president. Having said all of that, it's really ballsy to to choose this as the issue that you're going to not enforce. Right. The Congress. House and Senate combined, there were only five people who didn't vote for this all, near unanimous sanctions. In the middle of a Russia investigation, yes. to, to say I'm not going to enforce these sanctions, it, I, it's it's just in, insane that he can that he chooses to do this. Yeah. Um, why it, it's why do you think he he's going to get away with it? Right. Why, <laughs> so why would he, with given all the pressure on him, all the allegations that he was colluding with Russia? This seems like a no-brainer. When both the Democrats and the Republicans agree, there needs to be more sanctions on Russia. The, the Russian-U.S. relationship is already in the toilet. It's, it's not going to get any better. Why not just sign it? Put some additional sanctions on there. Putin's going to be pissed. What, what negative consequence is there 
other than like the existence of a PP tape. I don't know what's right. going on. He's stop getting his bags of rubles. What That's are you talking right. about? And sausages. And sausages. <laughs> That's why it's insane because the logic leads you to like the only reason he wouldn't. I'm not saying this is true, but you, it, it's easy to get to this point of like why. The only reason he's not doing it is because. Vladimir Putin has him by the balls somehow, yes, right? He yes. has some sort of blackmail or he's afraid that Vladimir Putin's going to release information or he's got some sort of loyalty. to. I don't know if any of that is true or not, but doing this just reeks of like it just puts that image forward. It doesn't. I, that's where I don't. Yes. Like I, it is so it makes so little sense politically that it leads you to think, well, there must be some truth to this other side of it. I can't come up with a good explanation for why he would fail to impose these sanctions. And his argument was, well, the sanctions we have are serving an effective deterrent. No, Russia is continuing to mess with our democratic process. All of this. I, I don't get what the value added is. What's what is in the interest of the United States other than maybe a, a personal connection, which, again, we're we're grasping for straws here. I don't think it's about what's the value for the United States. I mean, there are lots of potential explanations, right? It could be that that Trump is corrupt or you know tied to Putin or built in with Putin. It could be that part of Trump's personality is that he doesn't like being told what to do, right? And so That's it could true. just be this like reactive screw that I'm not going to do it. And and part of it is that he can get away with it somehow because of all of this crazy partisan level politics that we talked about. It, it's insane that he can get away with this. But I don't see him paying any real price. But then the stupidity of having the Treasury Department release this list, which upsets all of the Russian elite. Mm. So all of the political capital you hoped to gain by not imposing sanctions is lost because all Russia's been talking about for the last couple of days is this list that Forbes initially put together. And why you can't have an organization, Nick, that comes up with a legitimate list of Russian oligarchs. I don't know. Wouldn't it's very it? sad. We could do that. So- you know, I bet could do that. The State Department could probably <laughs> right. do that. There's nobody there. <clears throat> but you're also assuming that. I mean, I don't. I don't. I, this is. I don't want to go down the trail of like conspiracy theories and whatnot. But you're also assuming that the the Russian outrage is legitimate. Right? Oh no, it's not. <laughs> If, if, if you're Vladimir Putin, the, the logical thing is to be like, oh, I'm very upset about this. That, it, it, you're right. Not imposing sanctions and doing this was effective. That's right. <laughs> that's, like, that's how you would want to respond. Yeah. That's right. Oh, final topic, Nick. Go for it. This is a fun one. All right, gentlemen. Which, the question for the final topic is, which was the better insult? I initially put bigger. I switched to better. No. All right, this week learned after that after firing James Comey, President Trump called FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe on the phone to complain about the fact that Comey was allowed to take the FBI plane back from Los Angeles to D.C. Now, Comey didn't know he was fired on the flight out. He found out that he was fired by watching a television and then, you know, flew back. So Trump was pissed about this. He calls McCabe and says, why does this happen? McCabe said he didn't authorize it, but he would auth- would have authorized it because, you know, it's legitimate to bring employees home. You know, if you he's, have a soldier on the field, you don't want him out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so after McCabe says this, there was a slight pause, and Trump told McCabe he should ask his wife how it feels to be a loser. <laughs> An apparent <laughs> reference to his wife's failed campaign for, set, for state office in 2015. How does it feel to be a loser? She lost. She's a loser. Yes. 
She's right, so by definition a loser. <laughs> that's number, that's, hold on, Barker. That's number one. <laughs> number two, the White House asked the Guggenheim Museum to borrow a Van Gogh for the president's living quarters, but was informed by the Guggenheim that they could not accommodate that. But they could offer an alternative, an 18-karat gold, fully functioning, solid gold toilet, an interactive work of art titled America. Critics have described it as a pointed satire aimed at the excess of wealth in the country. What's the bigger, better insult? Oh, God. And you're you're both losers. (laughs) You look angry. (laughs) I I am just, I'm continually surprised (laughs) that, well, that anyone's reaction... (laughs) Like first reaction, that, that he immediately went to when when he was told something he didn't like, went to ask your wife what it's like to be a loser, yes, and then hung yes. up. Like, who does that, and how did he get to be president? I don't yes. understand. Apparently, McCabe answered, "Okay, sir," and then Trump hung up. And then Trump hung up. <laughs> it's a it, it's a pretty shitty. I mean, it's a pretty. It, that's kind of an asshole thing to do. Yeah. Like when you're talking about insult, that's kind of low. <laughs> and it's impressive that he could come up with that on the spot, right? right. So it was a double, double asshole move in the sense that one, he insults the guy's wife, but his his intent to call was a bad move in the sense of saying Comey should take the bus back from L.A. Oh God! <laughs> and that he insulted his wife and then hung up. Yes. Like I can picture other. Pre- I can see LBJ totally insulting someone, but then sitting on the phone and eating up the fight, like the the right. argument. And the insults yeah. that come afterwards, but yeah. <laughs> oh, Nicholas, where are you at on this? I mean, it's not even really a contest. <laughs> like, I I assumed he had a a solid gold toilet, anyways, on his <laughs> other right. plane or in his penthouse or something, or he had one installed in the White House. Yeah. So I would imagine that's that's kind of an upgrade, but um, <laughs> yeah, because that's a piece. That's it's a work of art. Yeah, it's solid there- gold any explanation at all no like was there a there was just that. that's there the brilliance no, like, of it that's we the don't brilliance. Out van goghs or anything good it was for just them that, yeah <laughs> sorry that's, that's the, a pretty that's, that's a pretty good, good insult yes yeah uh, that one's taken but we do have this solid gold toilet that <laughs> <It> works <laughs> yes and for me that's why i like that one i think that's the better insult because there's some deep sure. thought to it right? yeah. you know? oh god so. it's just sarcastic new york yeah it's great i just i i it's i like i don't even know what to say about that it's you're calling some guy's wife a loser yeah not only are you doing that but he has enough tact to not immediately reach through the phone and try and murder you is yeah like that's it's that should be on our straight yeah yeah that should be proof enough to show that the fbi is not is a a right. a, a functioning legitimate institution that you know you should not be messing with right they're they, I, I it's it's it, just insane if that should... quote unquote if that is true yes yeah <laughs> we should note to the listeners that andrew mccabe stepped down this week um he's a couple months away from retirement and he stepped down allegedly because of pressure from the white house and which um, is we really could have talked a lot about that yeah. and how yeah. kind of scary that is. Like you have slowly the whittling away or the chipping away of all of these supposedly independent people who are being replaced with Trump nominees. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, oh that was a fun one. Yeah. Or being replaced by no one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that too. apparently we didn't make the five. Minutes, but that's so all right. It was, the topic was solid. <laughs> <laughs> um, Shameless plugs. Yeah, I gotta I gotta do things. So uh, while Nick is doing things, I will say, like, uh, if you are a new listener to the podcast, continue to share us with uh, with your friends. <laughs> Hop on the Twitter and the Facebook and share the us Twitter. on the, the Twitter and the iTunes. Uh, we're still a young podcast trying to grow. So we really appreciate you telling uh, listeners around the country that you're enjoying the podcast. So. Yeah. Um, Facebook at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstool Paul. Um, the Untapped app, you can check out all the beers that we try and... Um, uh, give us suggestions. Um, you already said iTunes, right? I did. Yeah. You did say iTunes. Um, yeah, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, Google Play Music. You can find us on there and a bunch of other places that link to those things that I have no idea where people are listening to podcasts. Tweet at us. Yeah, yeah. Do tweet at us. We do. We, we do like some the tweeters tweeting. this week. We yeah. love it. Love yeah. it. It's it's super fun. Yeah. Um, anything from you, Phil? No. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll, we'll attempt to do this again next week. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.